Good evening, people of Mosaic. We're glad you're here. Hey, my name's Kyle. I'm one of the worship leaders here. Would you stand with us as we sing a new song to the Lord? This is about Psalm 150, and we're gonna praise him. We'll praise the Lord. Good to be with you. 
Uh, if this is your first time here at Mosaic, I just want to say welcome, and we'd love to know that you're here. A good way to let us know that is uh, text the number up there on the screen. Text uh, I'm new or Mo new to that number. You can also just walk out in the foyer and let somebody out there know in that info booth that this is your first time and you want to get some information. You can also just t- turn to anyone around you that seems to have a, a good feel on what's going on in the room and ask them, and they'll uh, they'll uh, be a good friend to you and let you know. So uh, my name is Matt Natesel. I work here with the family team with the kids uh, in our ministry, and so uh, I want to just put a few things in front of you this evening. And the first is our camp out. If you're one of those folks that's uh, been meaning to, uh, this is kind of your last chance to meaning to because uh, the, the reservations close on Monday morning so that we can kind of get all the last details in order. But we're going camping next weekend, so uh, we'll be out at Prairie Creek. I would love to have you. It'll be a really just fun, simple time. So uh, looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. So uh, and then I've been thinking about kids. My whole world's wrapped up around kids. My house is full of them. I come to work and I spend time with them here. And uh, kids are just naturally curious. You, you know that if you've spent time around kids, the question is always why. They're, they always have a why. When I think about kids in ancient Israel, in, in the time of the letter writing of Ephesians, those kids, if they are in in the, the land of Jerusalem and walking around, they were surrounded by monuments, by markings on door frames, by holidays or, or Sabbath rituals. Their whole life is just opportunity after opportunity after opportunity of their question of why having an answer of God's faithfulness. There's, we do this because God rested. We do this because God saved us. We do, so all of the answers were just something about the character of God. And I don't think our kids have that same opportunity. It's not like every monument and every holiday and everything prompts us to look up and to remember the risen Christ. But there are two things that we as a church do that are distinctives. Uh, Baptism and communion. They're, They're two remembrances that we celebrate as a church. And so we just don't want to uh, waste those opportunities. So you're going to notice in the coming years as you're around here that every time we have somebody getting baptized, there's going to be a lot more bodies in the room as we shut down kids' worship for a little bit and bring them over to watch those things happen. When your kids are in the room uh, for uh, a services, just kind of the normal rotation of when they're in here, we're going to try to do communion. And so we don't want you to be caught off guard by those. We, we uh, have a resource that's going to be going live on the new page this week. Uh, it, it'll probably be live by the time the newsletter goes out on Wednesday. So um, that'll help you just kind of walk through the conversations regarding baptism, communion, what they are, what's going on. But we also want you to know that on the 24th, uh, from elementary on up, just for this first time of trying it out, we're shutting down elementary service, shutting down middle school service. They're going to join us here at 5 o'clock. And, and as part of our just normal programming, we're going to do a little bit of teaching on communion, on baptism, uh, just kind of putting that out in front of them. So uh, I don't want you surprised when you come in the room with your kids and suddenly communion is in front of them and you're scrambling going, I wish I had thought ahead about this and, and had some answer or some conversation with them. Uh, we, we just want want in the life of our church, when their why is provoked, we want the answer to be about Christ and what he's done for us. So uh, can we, as we gather tonight, let's pray uh, to that regard. Jesus, thank you uh, that when we are prompted to remember around here, when we take communion and remember your body broken and your blood spilled, our hearts are stirred in affection for you, but also with hope for what what comes, this meal that we await uh, at all of our resurrection. And when we watch somebody be baptized or when we ourselves are baptized, we see the story of, of a person made new, uh, just like you, brought up out of the grave, never to die again, and we get to join you in that identification. So thanks for the blood of Christ spilled on our behalf. Thanks for the the resurrection that's promised to us. And we pray tonight as we celebrate together toward those ends. We love you.
commonplace to me, so I'm guessing that it probably feels like that to you, but this is something that's actually really, really special, that we give sacrificially and we ask the Lord to do with it what he will. And so in just a moment, our ushers are going to come and we're going to pass the plates. And we ask that no matter how you give, if it's here on Saturday night or you give online, that you receive the plate and that you take a moment and you pray over that offering. Pray over what God is going to do. Even take a moment, you can pause singing for a moment, but take a moment to pray over what God will do with what we give. Will you pray this with me right now? Oh Father, giver of all, every good and perfect gift comes from you. 
We ask you to accept these gifts and use them to your glory. May they bring shelter to the homeless, comfort to the sick, rest to the weary, and hope to the hopeless. As you multiply the offering of fish and loaves, multiply these to accomplish more than we can ask or imagine. We give freely and not under compulsion, for all we have is yours, Lord. Nothing we could give could match your great gift to us, your son and your spirit, amen.
Won't you remain standing for the reading of the word of God tonight? Hello, my name is Brad Godwin, and hey, how's it going, guys? And I'm married to my beautiful wife of 11 years, Leslie, and we have three daughters here on earth, Dia, Aria, and Evie, and one in heaven named Lucy. And uh, I serve with seventh grade boys through FSM Mosaic, which is super fun, and get the privilege of, of shepherding some of the communities here at Mosaic. Um, you're already standing, so read the word of the Lord with me tonight. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at, the, at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Ephesians 1, 15 to 23. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good evening, Fellowship Mosaic. My name's Will. How you guys doing? I serve on the training center team here at Fellowship and also on the, uh, the teaching team here at Mosaic. And I couldn't help but think as uh, we were being led in worship, um, part of our vision and hope for these gatherings is that they would be a, an expression of celebration of what God is doing all throughout the week. As if you're new to Mosaic, you'll even notice the way that we teach the scriptures, we teach in such a way that we're equipping the body to develop a hunger and a love for God's word in hope and expectation that you could not only throughout the week study this incredible book, but that you could teach it, share it with other people, particularly in cell groups, community groups throughout the week, but in whatever context that you live, work, and play and that when we gather here on the weekends, that the celebration really would be kind of a capstone or a response to what God has done all throughout the week. And with that sort of leaning in to, to equipping the body to do ministry and to study God's word on your own, one of our great passions uh, is to train leaders. And so even tonight, actually just across the, the lobby there, uh, Nick and Ted are kicking off a nine-week uh, training class called Panorama of the Bible. And I believe 40 leaders from Mosaic are signed up to go through that nine-week study during this five o'clock hour, studying from Genesis to Revelation, seeing how the scriptures are put together, uh, and, and studying the various movements that are woven throughout that incredible story. And so if you're new to Mosaic and you have interest in joining that class, particularly if the teach tonight, if about halfway through you go, man, this is not very good, you can go across the lobby and it'll be far better, okay? So we'll sort of use that as a gauge to see how many people get up. Now that you know you've got an option, it's like, why well, am I in here? Um, no, but that's going on. And, and actually, we encourage leaders to be trained and equipped here so that you could be more effective in producing and releasing leaders and making disciples all across Northwest Arkansas. You know, last week, Nick kicked off a brand new series that we're going through together as a church. He introduced this new teaching series 
uh, on the book of Ephesians to us. And the book of Ephesians in your Bible is actually in the New Testament, and it's written to a church in the city of Ephesus on the western coast of Asia Minor in what is modern-day Turkey. And sometimes it's just so helpful to be reminded that the stories of Scripture, these are not fictitious sort of fairy tale stories, but that actually Scripture, the Word of God, happened in real time with real people in real places. And the primary focus of this letter is actually on the theme of unity. Unity within the church, a church that included both Jews and Gentiles who have put their hope and trust in Christ. And tonight, week two of this series, we're gonna look at the second half of chapter one of Ephesians and focus in on who Christ is in us and the power that Jesus brings into our lives. You know, it's helpful to kind of understand even that the, the, the human author that the Holy Spirit used to write this incredible letter was a guy by the name of Paul. And as we read Ephesians, we get the sense that, that Paul is writing as a parent who's sharing truth with their children, knowing it will likely take a lifetime for them to fully understand just how true it really is. Have you ever been in a season of life where someone shared something true with you and you received it and thought, yeah, I bet that's true, but then literally years or even decades later, you were brought back to how true a statement that really was? I know just in my preparation the last couple weeks for this passage, my mind went to two conversations that I had over the last 20 years that, that, that triggered thoughts of when they were spoken to me, I didn't fully understand the weight and the gravity of those statements. And, and likely 10, 20 years from now, I'll still be unpacking just how true those statements were. One involved a conversation with my dad. As I was finishing up seminary, about to go in ministry full-time in the local church, I remember my dad telling me, son, no parent would ever wish the ministry on their son or daughter because this is going to be painful at times for you. And I remember thinking then, that's probably a true statement, but there were times over the last 20 years that I've been able to pick up the phone and call my dad in a moment of discouragement where he's been able to coach me through a painful experience because actually the ministry, of course, we all know, is filled with lots of pain, is filled with disappointment. We, we traffic and walk through life with other broken human beings. Of course, it's gonna be painful. And I can remember at various points in my brief, what feels like brief leadership tenure, being able to pick up the phone and talk to my dad and him remind me once again, Jesus is enough, he's with you, he will provide you the strength to get through this, but Will, this is one of the reasons why no parent would wish their kids would go into ministry. It was true, but it felt even truer in that moment. Another conversation, was actually as Sarah and I were engaged, and I can remember where I was standing, but I was with my father-in-law in a little makeshift wood shop. It's actually in their basement where we've spent a lot of hours together over the years, and I was just picking Tom's brain. He was about to be my father-in-law, and we were about to get married, and I'm going, hey, Tom, what do I need to know about marriage? And I remember him telling me, Will, above all else, protect the peace of your home at all costs. You know what 22 or 23 year old Will thought at the time? I didn't say this to my father-in-law, but at the time I remember thinking, Tom, you don't understand. Sarah and I are just gonna make out all the time. Like, <laughs> protect the peace in this home. This is gonna be a piece of cake. But you throw in, and we still make out a fair amount, but you throw in, <laughs> you throw in a couple kids and a career and some church planting and the ministry and some health issues and 
Suddenly you understand sort of the gravity or the weight of that truth. Protect the peace of this home at all costs. Allow the the peace of Christ to flood your life in such a way that you could be the protector of the peace. It's a true statement. But I might spend the rest of my lifetime unpacking just how true it is. That gives us a sense in which the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. This is a church that Paul spent three years of his life pastoring, teaching. And now as he writes this letter to him, it's likely been about four years since he ministered to the people there in Ephesus. But what's fascinating about the passage that we're going to study tonight is I don't know about you, but as Paul challenges them to realize who they are in Christ and the power that he brings into their life, if I'm honest, most of my days are marked by struggle. If I'm honest, I don't know that the power of Christ saturates my life on a daily, moment-by-moment basis that I fully understand it yet. And so tonight, one of my prayers is, is that we study the second half of Ephesians 1, that we'll learn something new about Jesus and his methods and his pace and the manner in which he brings about transformative change in our lives. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, picking up in verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So we see here in verse 15, this phrase, for this reason, Paul is is reflecting back on the fact that he's just unpacked the inheritance and the blessings that are promised to the life of a Christ follower. And so he's saying, in light of that, when I think about the people there in Ephesus, and when I hear of your faith and your love, I give thanks to God. You know, one of the things that's so fascinating about this verse here in verse 15 and 16, it almost feels as if it's a little bit transitional. In chapter one, Paul is dealing with the theology of the inheritance or the blessing that we have in Christ. And just before he shifts gears and begins to address the power that we have in Christ, who Christ is in our lives, in verses 15 and 16, He talks about something that actually is a significant theme in the theology of Paul. It's this idea of faith and love. You see, one of the most important things in the writings of Paul, we see this in Ephesians and Corinthians and Romans, is this idea of faith and love. These themes of trust and a love for God, and a love for other people. And it touches on the idea that theology, proper thinking about God and life and the world, faith, which is proper trust and obedience, and love, which is proper treatment of others, these three are to form almost like a a, a three-stranded cord to shape the life of a follower of Jesus, that we're to think properly, we're to be transformed in our trust and our obedience to Jesus, but also to be transformed in the way that we treat one another and the world. And when put in their proper order and the proper combination, the response is a life of gratitude. And so one of the reasons Paul here is so thankful from the reports that he's receiving from Ephesus is he so thankful for the faith and the love of the followers of Jesus there in the city of Ephesus? And in response is gratitude. 
And so in verse 17, in response to that gratitude, he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope of which he has called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And this and his incomparably great power for us who believe. You see, similar to the first half of chapter one, Paul here, as he focuses in on the power that Jesus fills the life of a Christ follower, in just a moment, he's gonna launch almost into a worship service, recounting the power that Jesus brings to our lives. But before we unpack that, I want you to focus in on verse 18 and this prayer that Paul has for the believers there that he's so grateful for. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. You know, in the ancient world, particularly with both Greeks and Hebrews, this word heart is, is actually associated with the center for knowledge and understanding, thinking, and even wisdom. You know, for most of us, when we hear the word heart, we think in terms of emotion or affection. But here, the word heart is almost used in the ways that we would think in terms of our mind. That actually, in the ancient world, they thought with their heart and they felt with their bowels, their gut, which really doesn't make great Hallmark cards. If you can imagine, like, I love you from the depths of my bowels. That's not, that doesn't have a great ring to it. You're probably not gonna see a lot of songs written about that. But here, Paul really is asking, I pray that the eyes of your mind, the way that you think, would be enlightened. And enlightened in such a way that you could come to understand the hope, the riches, and the power of Christ. But the language that Paul uses here in verse 18, this whole idea of praying that these followers of Jesus would be enlightened, it really is language that is, is he's asking, I pray that your lives would be flooded by light. Or I pray that, that your lives would no longer be dulled or confused or foggy. And it begs the question, as Paul is praying for these believers, praying that their lives would be enlightened or flooded by light, in contrast to that, it begs the question, what dulls your heart to the things of God? Likely the same thing that would have dulled the, the heart or the mind of believers in Ephesus 2,000 years later are likely some of the same things that dull our heart or our mind to the things of God today. What are the things in your life that distract you from truly understanding the nature and the character of God? Could it be just simply busyness? Could it be a, a constant bombardment of things that are the opposite of God's character? Could it be a life of complete distraction? A lack of understanding of God's word? Maybe it's even a history or sort of an uninvolvement in a local New Testament church where God's word is taught and you're challenged and you're discipled and encouraged to become a disciple maker. There's worth consideration there. What dulls our hearts from the things of God? And imagine the response here of Paul's prayer. God, could you enlighten our heart in such a way that we could see you clearly? But then notice in the second part of verse 19, Again, it's as if Paul is gonna focus in on the great power that is provided to us in Christ 
and he launches in to a worship service. That power that's available to the believer is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Again, notice some of the language that's describing The power of God at this point. It's the same as the mighty strength that he exerted in the resurrection. It's power over all rulers and authorities, past, present, future, all things under the feet of Christ, head over everything, fills everything in every way. That's incredible power. And it's incredible to think of Paul leading the church there in Ephesus, directing their lives back to Jesus, the same Jesus that he had preached to them. But I couldn't help but think in unpacking chapter one together to just take a few moments to consider where Paul's life had been just about 20 years ago. And we actually can see exactly what Paul's life was like. It wasn't one that was characterized by the same gratitude and prayer and great power that he's directing people to now. No, it was quite the opposite. Take a look with me in Acts chapter 9. We can see exactly what Paul was up to before he had his encounter with Jesus Christ. Take a look at Acts chapter 9. Just the first six verses. Meanwhile, Saul, that's Paul, was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. This doesn't sound like a man who's expressing gratitude for the faith and love of Christ's followers. No, this is the the opposite of that. His life is breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. In fact, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's followers of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he entered Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So here, Paul has an encounter with Jesus as he's attempting to persecute the church, and Jesus asks him this question, why do you persecute me? You see, in a moment, Paul's life was transformed by Jesus for all of eternity. This one interaction, this one conversation changed the entire trajectory of Paul's life on planet Earth and for all of eternity. He had encountered the living, risen Savior. And it would change his love and devotion for the church forever. One thing that was so fascinating to me, and we'll see this as we continue to study Ephesians, but one thing that was so fascinating to me in in reading, actually one of my seminary professors, a guy named John Polhill uh, from Southern Seminary, he picked up on the link in this passage between Jesus and the church being the body of Christ that becomes so central to the writings of Paul. And so here, Jesus doesn't come to Paul asking him, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting my church? No, rather, he comes to him saying, why are you persecuting me? And in that moment, Paul began to see the link 
between Jesus being the head of the body of Christ, the church, and that relationship that he would spend the rest of his life fighting for the purity and the unity of the local church so that the church would truly see themselves as the body of Christ, with Christ being the head. And it's just fascinating to think of Paul in that moment, sort of the, the, the young apostle Paul, before he becomes a church planner, before he would be used by God to write major portions of the New Testament, but before he would begin praying for these churches that he's planted, to think of Paul in that moment, encountering Jesus for the first time and having his life transformed by Christ. But you know what happened after that? Paul didn't immediately springboard into a public ministry and begin missionary journeys and begin preaching and teaching and writing the New Testament. No, actually, one of the things that was so fascinating for me to see in Scripture was to actually see that Paul, from that moment, he enters into what is, is often referred to as the silent years, or scholars estimate anywhere from seven to 13 years, perhaps a decade, where Paul encounters Jesus, is transformed, but then spends some time in Arabia and then in Tarsus, and he begins to develop basically as a leader in obscurity. But notice in verse 11 how Paul is plucked from obscurity and really given the leadership platform where he would begin to develop. Flip over just a few verses in Acts chapter 11, verses 25 through 26. Paul at this time is in Tarsus, and a man by the name of Barnabas is gonna be sent from Jerusalem up to a church in Antioch to check out what God is doing there. And he's gonna sort of stumble into an environment where lives are being changed by the gospel and the church is growing. And Barnabas is instinctively gonna think, who can I pull in to help with this endeavor? And he's gonna go get Paul from obscurity and bring him to Antioch. Pick up in verse 25 of chapter 11. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And so we, again, we see Barnabas sees God at work in Antioch and he goes and plucks Paul from obscurity. And it's so fascinating to look at this relationship as it develops throughout the New Testament to consider the fact that what was God doing in the life of Paul during that decade or more of development? And one of the questions that it ought to cause us to even ask in considering that decade of development in the life of the Apostle Paul is, are we men and women that are comfortable being developed in relative obscurity? Would we be okay with our lives being transformed by Jesus, but then taking time to be developed and trained and equipped and waiting on God's timing to prepare us for the leadership platform that he would entrust to our care? And on the other side of the corner, or, or sort of a similar track, to look through this scenario through the lens of, of Barnabas, and to think of the humility that Barnabas must have had to see God at work in Antioch, to engage in preaching and teaching and disciple making there, and to see the church begin to blossom. And rather than be a leader that says, oh man, I've got this, to instinctively think, who can I pull in to be a part of this? Where is God at work? Where have I seen God at work in the lives of others that I can invite to come live on mission with me? And for Barnabas to go to, to Tarsus and to bring Paul back to Antioch and be a leader that's comfortable building a ceiling that other leaders might stand on and begin to flourish. It's a certain amount of humility there. And so to ask, am I a leader that's comfortable helping another leader stand on my shoulders? 
There's real beauty in that. But again, what we begin to see here in Ephesians chapter one, particularly the second half of this chapter, is the transformative power of Christ in our lives. It's both immediate and it's gradual. See, what Paul was sharing with the Christians there in Ephesus was a truth that they would be able to spend the rest of their lives unpacking and discovering how true it is. He's almost writing as a parent to spiritual children going, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you may know the power of Christ that is filling your lives. It was true in that moment, and yet we can spend a lifetime discovering how true it really is. And so it's incredible to think of just the transformative power of Christ, how it is both immediate and gradual. But one of the things that, that's so, and this just is such a reflection of human nature, is the fact that when we see God work in immediate, clear ways in our life, oftentimes we prefer they would be gradual. So oftentimes when we feel like God has clearly spoken to us in his word or through our prayer life or through other people, we go, uh, let me get back to you on that one. You know, for instance, I was thinking this as, as Cassie was even teeing up the idea of offering and being a generous people. Can you think of the moments in your life where you feel God tapping you on the shoulder saying, I want you to be generous because I'm a generous God. And you go, yeah, uh, let me pray some more about that, Lord, because I don't know how generous you're asking me to be. Let's, let's slow that pace down a little bit. Let's let this thing be gradual. But on the flip side, think of the times where God's work in your life has been gradual and steady, year after year, decade after decade. And yet when God's at work gradually in our life, we usually get very, very frustrated and want it to be immediate. And go, God, you dropped the ball. You need to speed things up a little bit. But when we consider that the transformative power of Christ in our life, it's both immediate and gradual, it ought to allow us to rest and to learn to trust the manner and the rhythms and the pace through which Jesus brings about transformation in our lives. And so if you would, Mosaic, turn with me again to Ephesians chapter one, verse 17 and 18. And imagine if this became the consistent prayer in your walk with Jesus. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope, the riches, and the power of Christ at work in you. Mosaic, would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much, Lord, that year after year, we can turn to it and it just continues to speak because it's so living and active. God, I'm so thankful for the power of Christ. I'm so thankful, Lord, that you just continue to reveal it to us and to show us your way of working. Lord, I pray as the body of Christ, we would be a people whose eyes our heart are continually enlightened to the ways in which you work. Lord, I pray that Mosaic would be a church that is marked by faith in Christ and is marked by our love for people. And in doing so, Lord, your power and might would be on full display in our lives. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Don't satisfy Power.
take a moment to be with Jesus. We'll have a, a Selah here. We'll actually have the prayer of blessing from last week that we did during our prayer pause on the screen. And if you will, just kind of read through it a couple times. Would you, would you just take a moment and be with the Lord?
words won't be on the screen. I just feel like we need to sing this song tonight. If you know it, would you sing with me? Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. Sing that one more time. It'll be our prayer. that's our prayer. Lord, that as you're shaping us and forming us into your image, that we are just focused completely on you tonight. God, we love you. Thank you for the gift of gathering and worship and what it, how, how it forms and shapes our hearts, Father. We love you, God. Help us keep in step with, our, with your spirit as we head out into the, to the world, Father. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.